0: The following is a presentation of the Speed Sport Podcast Network.
1: This is the premier podcast for late model dirt track racing. This is Forward Bike.
2: From the Crosley Studios in Race City, USA, here's your host, Kyle Armstrong. Welcome back to another edition of the Forward Bike Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Armstrong, and the Speed Sport Studios presented by Crosley Radio. This week, I'm joined by guest co-host, Blake Harris, and very, very happy to have a special guest, former race car driver of, of a lot of fame, Ronnie Sewell out of Shelby, North Carolina. Uh, Ronnie, how are you today? I'm doing good. <laughs> well, I appreciate you coming all this way to be in here today. Usually, we call them on the phone, and I can't thank you enough for being here to, to do this today. So, I guess the first question I'll ask you, uh, how'd you get, well, first of all, you go going all the way back to... You know, you were you were originally from Belmont, right? Cramerton, yes. Cramerton mm-hmm. went to school with my dad. Sure did. Yeah. So you you and my dad are the same age. Right. Your dad was uh he was a
1: uh, quite the artist in yeah. school. He drew hot rod cars, doing burnouts and all that kind of stuff, and uh he was impressive at an early age.
2: Yeah, and, and so yeah, he so he so I've known you all my life and, and he's he's known you since the first grade, so naturally as a as a kid growing up and i was born in 91 but i was always a big fan of yours and um and yeah it's an honor to have you in here tonight so i guess how did you get started racing and when was that and what was that
1: uh i guess the first racing i did uh started uh on uh, three-wheelers and four-wheelers bikes and that kind of stuff and uh moved on up into the go-karts and uh as always, the tires got so expensive on go karts. You could almost run a, you know, you could run a lower class dirt car for, for a, the same way you could run a uh, the same amount of money. You could run a go kart. So uh, we moved into the, uh, to the dirt stuff. I had a friend uh, who was uh, a very close friend, who was my uh, my mechanic, and he told me if I would run uh, uh, Mopar powered cars, he would help me. Otherwise, he would not help me. And I wasn't a mechanic, so uh, my brother worked at a um, Dodge dealership, and he traded for a 1969 uh, Dodge Charger with a 440 in it. It was painted blue, but it had been painted over the Dukes of Hazzard uh, (laughs) scheme. Uh So we took that car, and and, uh, Gene, I said, my my buddy, I said, are we going to build this engine? Oh, no, we'll be fine. So I melted the engine down the first race at Harris. So he built me an engine, and we took that car and won a couple races with it that year. And then, uh, uh, what year
2: was that? That was
1: 1986.
2: And was that the Challenger? No, not yet. We went on
1: to the next year. I was I was working for uh, in sales for a local Chevrolet dealership, and and my friend Gene was there as the uh, sales manager. And uh, we traded for a Dodge Aspen, and Gene said, "That's what you need for a race car." So we bought the car and went on the next year and won a bunch of races with that car. Won the track championship. That was the first year of Thunder Lightning, 1980s I think 86 or 87. And um, then we moved up to the Challenger because you could run you could run any engine that came in the car from the factory. So. You had eleven different engines choices for a 1970 mile Challenger, and uh, we uh, we put a 440 in it, killing the weight ratio. You know, the we had 60% nose weight, but as long as you had a tacky racetrack, I mean, you know, you could you could uh, you could turn it when you got it turned, you could go. But it, it it made a lot of enemies because it plowed a lot going through the
0: corners. I do want to ask you, kind of, you talked about the go karts and how the tires was expensive. Was, were y'all prepping back then, kind of like they do now? Just iterate, reiterate on that. How was it back then, of course, now their cars are astronomically more, but how was it back then that the go-kart was more expensive than the race car?
1: It, it was just the, the purchase of the tires themselves. They just got so, so expensive. Uh, prepping wasn't wasn't a big deal then not like it is now I, I, it's 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 crazy I, i've been to some races and watched what they do now and 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 uh tires are are, are, are the only way to go i mean you, you if you if the tires aren't working you're not you, you're going to the back
2: yeah you got that right uh you mentioned thunder and lightning yep. at Cherokee speedway i want you to kind of briefly explain to the listener what that thunder and lightning series was because that was the that was the golden era of Cherokee Speedway, in my opinion, and um, I kind of got to see the tail end of it. But you were out right there whenever it kind of got started. So, yeah. kind of tell us a little bit about what that was. Yeah,
1: David Perry, who who was a track promoter then, actually started that that uh, that deal, and uh, one of the greatest track promoters I ever ever worked with. He was he was all for the driver. I wrecked the car one night really bad, and he came down and stuck a couple hundred dollar bills in my pocket down where nobody could see him. And you don't, you know, you just don't hear that. But he he, he was, but that division was for stock bodied cars, stock suspension, uh, stock engines. Uh, Had a, I think we had a 3,200 pound uh, weight rule. Uh, You had to run a street legal tire a dot tire no racing tire in the beginning and uh but uh it was just a lot a of, lot of had a lot of great competition had uh mitchell Duval, wally fowler billy bishop uh i think john Persley ran some then mike messer
2: uh todd bells yeah doug man davis doug man davis yeah yeah, it just goes Doug, on and
1: on. Dude. Doug Man built my first three did cars. He? Yeah, he built it. He he did all the the uh, suspension, uh, cages, and all that stuff in them.
2: So when did you move to Shelby? Like, when did you go up there to that area? My, my father took a
1: job uh, in Shelby uh, in 1972. I was 15 years old, and uh, just just crushed me because Cramerton and the Belmont area was where I was raised, and I you know. Played football. That's all I knew. Was playing football with those guys, and uh, when we moved. It was it was a tough deal. But went on. I would have went to South Point. Went on, and the best year that Crest had was my junior year to that point of being a school, and uh, we uh, we lost one regular season game and lost the first round of playoff to South Point to the to the boys that I grew up with. Yeah, It was pretty. And cool. you were
2: playing in football. Yeah, yeah.
1: So what position did you play in football? I played. Uh, everything from guard to tight end to middle linebacker to fullback uh, I weighed a I graduated weighing 155 pounds and it was just, uh, just just pure grit was the only reason I got to play and I went off to college thinking that I was going to play a lot of ball and I was fourth string, so um, <laughs> didn't take me long to figure out I didn't need to be in college or play football anymore. Where'd you so. go to?
2: Where'd you go to college? Lenore Ryan. Lenore Ryan,
1: yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I graduated one year. I mean, I...
2: <laughs> now I hear you.
0: <laughs> so uh, I, I do want to ask you because me and you went same high school. I'm a graduate of a Crest, and you know, you know as good as I do, the sports are like so serious there. Was it that way at South Point, or kind of was it a culture shock oh, going yeah. to Crest and being like, oh, man, they are really serious about their ball playing here? They still are. Uh, I'll explain this to you. South Point was
1: heads and shoulders in intensity above Crest at that time. But you got to keep in mind, I went to Crest in the eighth year that they were a school. and they, I mean, it was still building. I mean, it was – and. Uh, so, no, there wasn't – I felt a letdown when I went to Crest in the beginning. Wow. But, uh, and, you know, it's that's – with with tradition, that, that changed. South Point didn't want to lose in anything. They loved me at, 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 at Crest because they said that boy – you know, the, the coach called me uh, Belmont. He called me all kinds of uh, different names, but uh, – I was a. We had a front uh, front line that averaged two oh five all the way across the front line, and I weighed one fifty five. <laughs> so I had to be pretty gritty to hang out with those boys, but uh, it was it was fun.
2: They said they eat a lot of grits up there in that area. Uh, yeah, I like grits. <laughs> so, I, I guess the reason I brought that up, I was just kind of. So Dougman Davis was like a huge name at the time, a legend, mm-hmm. and as He's uh he's done passed on, but he's still a legendary name in that in that business. Tell us a little bit about him. Doug Mann built my my
1: first three cars, dirt cars, and uh, he had so much talent when it came to fabrication. I, I, the guy you throw down a piece of stuff. I own a fabrication business now, and and I have a bunch of employees and I have a bunch of talented employees, but I don't know of anybody. In my my that worked for me that has the talent that Doug Mann he could take a piece of flat sheet metal and make anything it it, it was it, it was crazy he was really really he was a great race car driver too but now he dated the girl that lived next door to me hmm. so uh, well he ended up marrying her and got had Douglas and, but uh, I got stories about Doug Mann for days. We can't tell them all, but uh, he was—he was—he uh, was a natural-born, talented person in, as a driver and a fabricator.
0: Yeah, that, you talked about the stories for Doug Man. I am gonna see if I can get you to tell one because everybody talked about Doug Man. It was his way or the highway. Wherever you went, he always had the iron head. Do you got any stories about kind of Doug Man? Kind of because people used to think he was mean, but once he let you in, he'd bleed for you. Was that kind of the case? Doug Mann and I had differences, but we
1: never had the differences uh, to, to the point that we uh, threw down with each other. We actually boxed for the same boxing team for mm-hmm. a while, and uh, Doug Mann was left-handed, and boy, when they didn't know that was coming, <laughs> he, he he would throw the haymaker to him, and it was over. And uh, we took him to a, a boxing match in Charlotte one night, and he... Uh, he, uh, the alcohol took a little part in it, and uh, we ended up going home in separate vehicles, and he pulled up beside us, and the vehicle was somebody we didn't even know that he didn't even know was taking him home. He had a few choice words to say to us, and we went on our way, but we never, uh, he and I never, uh, we had a mutual respect for one another. He was a lot of fun, but he called me at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. He'd be in the wrong place at the wrong time, and uh, somebody would have to go get him. <laughs> Everybody loved him, though.
2: <laughs> well, tell us about some of those thunder and lightning races. Some of your earlier races there, like, I mean, like you, like you've done said, it was the, it was a star-studded lineup, and whenever they dropped the green flag, it was serious business, just as serious as it was at Crest High School. They're playing football. You had 15 laps
1: to get it done. Yeah. You had a, you had about a five-lap heat race, I think it was. You had to draw for, for you, for your starting position and. Uh, uh, I had uh, one of the best compliments I guess I ever got was from Earl Parker Jr. And uh, he met me in the alley up there one day going to Shelby Cafe, and he said, I want to tell you something. I said, okay. He said, you're the fastest man from the back to the front that I've ever saw in every race. <laughs> we tore up a little stuff, but uh, you, you didn't you didn't have any time.
2: You had to go.
0: Yeah, had to go. So I do uh, – I talked to Freddie Crawford down there last year at the Phil Combs thing. Me and you was both at it. And, of course, he run that car, teammates, C.L. Pritchett. And the best line I ever heard about TNL was when he went to the Supers from TNL, he actually says he moved up a division because there was so much talent in TNL. You run Supers and you run TNL. Do you kind of think the same way about that?
1: Yeah, there was so much competition there. Uh, You know, nobody was – Really outdoing anybody on horsepower or suspension, you had to get your you had to get your act together and and, and put your big boy pants on when when you and and you like I say you had a few laps, but I loved racing with Freddie. He had me out ran He had me one night, and he was catching me on the high line, and the white flag came out, and he was making the move to go around me, and I moved up and took his lane. He said, you know, I had you. He had already passed me, and the caution came out, and he had to go back. And he told me about that at the, uh, at the last time I saw him at, at Phil Combs uh, uh, when he did his mm-hmm. open house up there. Freddie was Freddy was always cool, fun to drive with. We never had a disagreement ever. Now, there's a few others. We had a couple of disagreements, <laughs> but you're going to have it and race it.
2: So what, uh, what kind of a car was that at that time? I don't know if we got that part uh, of the story.
1: I ran the uh I ran the Charger, then the Aspen, then the Challenger, and then in nineteen we won we won a championship 86, 87, 88. We were leading in eighty nine and we had a little disagreement at the track and they suspended me for a week and I didn't go back.
2: What was the disagreement? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you
1: well know, it's kind of a it's, well, just I'll just be just tell you how it was. I had uh, we'd went out in the race and there was a dark spot coming off a of turn four down the front stretch, and um, I was leading the race and I ran up on a car, and he was at half speed in the fast lane and I absolutely did not see him. I sure didn't want to hit nobody on the you know last lap me leading the race. I jerked to go around him and I hooked him in his in his left rear, cut his tire down. <clears throat> went on, won the race, went to the truck, changed clothes, and I had a deal where I'd go up and get my money. I didn't I didn't like standing in line at the end of the night with all the arguing and fussing. So I would go up and get my money before, you know, after I raced before, so I didn't have to go through that deal. Well, I'm walking down Pitt Road, and a guy steps out in front of me and starts cursing me and telling me, "So, what? Look what you did to my car!" And he and hit me. I said, "Man, I'm sorry." I, and he kept, and I apologized. And about the third or fourth time I apologized, he hits me, and we kind of lock up, and we're wrestling around in between the cars there. And he grabs me in my private area, and boys, he was trying to, he was trying to relieve me of what I had. <laughs> wow. It was bad. So I got him pinned. I, I had him, I had one arm holding his hand, and I had him in a headlock. Well, he spun on me, and he still got me in my growing area with one hand. And he, when he turned around, he's biting me in my chest. And so I've got his head with this arm, and I got his other arm with this arm, trying to keep get from getting damage in both areas. I didn't have anything to work with. And <laughs> I looked down and...
2: And that's a lot of pain. That's it's a lot bit. of
1: pain. I had I had bruises and clogged scratch marks on in that area. And uh, so uh, I looked down and there was his ear and I said, well, I'll just bite him till he turns me loose. And I guess I was a little excited and uh, his ear popped off. So <laughs> his buddies were beating me in the back with a two by four. So when the blood came, everybody disappeared. It was it was pretty much over. They didn't. Uh, they didn't. Uh, but you know what's a guy supposed to do in a situation like that? I didn't start it, and I tried to get out of it. I tried to apologize, and he just was relentless, and uh, it wasn't a lot of fun. So they suspended me for that for a week, and I didn't. Uh, I didn't go back that year. And we were leading. We finished fifth in the points and didn't run from July to. <laughs> so we would we would have had four consecutive track championships.
0: Ronnie Sewell, live here on Forward Bike, just admitted he did the Mike Tyson before Mike Tyson did it. (laughs) That is quality you only get here on the Forward Bike Podcast, ladies and gentlemen.
2: (laughs) Hey, we'll take just a quick break here. Coming up, more with Ronnie Sewell. This is the Forward Bike Podcast on the Speed Sport Podcast Network, presented by Crosley Radio and NASCAR Digital Media. Welcome back to the Forward Bike Podcast here on the Speed Sport Podcast Network. We're here with Ronnie Sewell. If you ever need a swimming pool, get a hold of Superior Pools of South Carolina. He'll do you a good job. Chad Hovis down there in Merle's Inlet, South Carolina. He'll come up to anywhere you are and uh, and make you a nice one. So get a hold of him. Also thanks to Earl Ramey Racing Engines for all their support. And right now I'm going to ask a trivia question. I got a little giveaway here. and uh, the. The prize is going to be a pair of tickets for Friday night at Bristol for the World of Outlaws Bristol Bash and the trivia question goes as follows Name the first person that can name the driver that set fast time at last year's Bristol Bash and then was disqualified for being light at the scales name that driver and you've got yourself a free pair of tickets
0: So me and Ronnie's automatically omitted from this competition cuz we here right you y'all you y'all, you didn't want to go did you <laughs> I don't know. I might know the answer, but I'm going to keep hush there and let's, let, let's let 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 one, a gra- let one of our great listeners win this yeah, package wanna, you got. I want to let one of the listeners uh, go. <laughs>
2: you know, that's the first giveaway we've ever had. We're about 47, 48 episodes into this deal, and that's the first time I've – but that's courtesy of SRI Performance, by the way. So thanks to SRI Performance for that pair of tickets for Friday night at Bristol. Uh, whoever can get a hold of me on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram and knows the answer to that trivia question, just name the driver. You've got yourself a pair of tickets, and I'll – email them to you. All right, we're back here with uh, Ronnie Sewell. And Ronnie, you were talking about getting in a heck of an altercation there back in the day at Cherokee Speedway. But I know there was more to it than fighting. You won a lot of races there over the years. Tell us about one of your most memorable victories there.
1: Uh, well, I had a ton of success in the, in the Thunder and Lightning division and enjoyed every minute of it. But uh, after I got away from that, I went into some asphalt racing. But when I came back to run uh, – I ran some Thunder Lightning again, and I decided to do the late model deal. And I ran it for uh, two years. And uh, we were running a super race down there. And I had Mike Duval in my quarter panel, in my mirror, up beside me, every lap for the entire race. And uh, that was my only super win. And uh, I'm probably as most proud of that as in you know any of the, the to, to outrun a legend like that because mike helped me a lot in different a lot of different ways we were great friends he was a super super guy and uh that would that that would be one of the top
2: for sure and you had a you say you had a mirror yeah <laughs> yeah you don't hear him saying that anymore. um <laughs> and mike duval for real he was he was the he was the man legendary yes yes Seven hundred fifty victories or something like that. They now. said he had over a thousand, but okay. I'm not sure what the. But they, we'll, we'll go with that. He had yeah. over a thousand.
0: Whatever Dwayne Goins is saying nowadays, yeah. we'll go with
2: that. <laughs> Jonathan Duval listens to this show regularly. He'll, uh, his son. He'll he'll correct I, us if I remember Jonathan. Yes,
1: yeah. he was just a little kid there. Yeah. And, uh, spent a lot of time around him back in those days. Yeah. And Mitchell, Mitchell Park. Uh, pitted beside us in the Thunder Lightning days. And when we went down for the, a uh, um, couple years ago, for the um, Hall of Fame inductee uh, ceremonies, Mitchell went in the same night as I did. And Mitchell, uh, he said, uh, I never did tell you this. He said, my, my daddy always told me, he said, You go down there and you pit beside Ronnie and Gene, they'll take care of you and nobody will bother you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Mike Mike must have seen you bite that guy's ear off. He knew his son was protected.
1: Well, all the late models, you know, they pitted up on that. They had the front stretch. We couldn't pit up there, so we we pitted down behind the fence. And there's some good stories to go with that fence, too.
2: Give us one of your favorite ones.
1: (laughs) This wasn't a favorite. Uh, Uh, It was another uh, race to uh, a battle after the race, or during, I was driving, uh, I had uh, the Thunderlight in the car, but a guy had, uh, they had a modified four-cylinder division. And these guys from uh, Lawndale had built a Carmen Ghia. And uh, <laughs> the car was unbelievably fast. And it didn't matter, if you got it pointed You just stood on the throttle. It'd hook up in the mud. It'd hook up anywhere you wanted to go. So we go down to the race, and they didn't race them at Gaffney regular, and they asked me to drive it that night. So I go down. In the heat heat race, the throttle stuck, and I left the track in between two and three, and all those cement block that had fell from the wall and and the tower that were there, I'm managed to get across them with the volkswagen <laughs> so we we come back and uh we uh got the throttle fixed and there were 22 entries i started at the rear and it was a 10-lap main i'm passing a guy coming off of turn two in the mud white flag lap and i'm driving under him and he looks over at me and turns left on me and when he did, he, it, it broke the right front tie rod. So, so naturally, the car turned right, went drove over his hood, and took us both down the bank. That was before they had the, the concrete retaining wall. And uh, first person to my car was my brother. He said, don't say nothing. I said, well, he said, don't say nothing. He said, there's 50 of them. <laughs> <laughs> and I look up, and sure enough, it was just me and my brother. My crew was still at the, the truck. And, uh, so when we got to the truck, I didn't say anything. When we got to the truck, they came and we had parked just inside of that fence opening. Man, there were so many of them. They had to funnel like cattle to come through that gate. <laughs> the whole town of Cherville was came to whip us. And, uh, we did pretty good. As one boy reached through the crowd and, uh, the brother to the driver, he swung through the crowd and hit me and knocked my tooth through my lip. I got home that night and I kept, mm. I kept having a seepage from my lip and I got home that night and pulled my lip up and looked in the mirror and there was a hole all the way through.
2: Wow. So, yeah. But it sounds like, it, you know, that's the way they always start. I mean, that's your side of the story but it sounds like it was just a racing deal and they Listen, thought you were trying to wreck him.
1: I stayed at my truck, at my car, and my pits. I never went to anybody else's pits for any, any of that kind of stuff and, sometimes you just get in a bad situation and I guess they want to settle it a different way there's four-cylinder guys Uh, yeah yeah
0: Blake's dad won some
2: four-cylinder races yeah
0: yeah I remember him well yeah my dad uh they had the stock four and the mod fours daddy went 96 97 98 in the Stock fours, but he still had tough competition. Then you had Corky Fleming, Andy Madison. Mm-hmm. You had Jamie, of course. You raced with in TNL. Yep. Freddie Crawford even said, we'll "Go back to Freddie." He even said Jamie Madison was the most talented guy he ever raced with, probably. And I kind of want to lean into that. We talked about the TNL, and I've always wanted to ask other TNL guys that who is pro- who had the most probably raw talent in that division because we. Me and, we named off eight, not even trying. I could probably name off 20 if I thought real hard. Who's probably had the most raw talent you race with in that division? Well, It wasn't me. Uh, <laughs>
1: <laughs> I never sat in a car, never drove a car until I was 26. Hmm. Uh, so I didn't have any, uh, any. Uh, you know, I had the go-kart stuff. But uh, Jamie was, was, I'm sure, there at, at, at the top. Um, you know, Billy was great. Wally's still great. Um, uh, Freddie Crawford, Strawberry Davis, Doug Mann. Um, geez, I'll leave somebody out. Here we go again, naming them off. <laughs> but just, I mean, there was just... Uh, and any of those could guys uh, could win any every week. I mean, it, it wasn't like somebody was dominating, you know. Uh, so it was... Uh, a, a lots and lots of talent. I, I, I but Jamie uh, was was uh, he was just a kid then, but he 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 was tough.
2: Bear with me a say All right, here's what I was looking for. Now here's the list of the all-time winners there at Cherokee Speedway from '92 to 2002. So they don't even really include them all, mm-hmm. but you're on there with 15 mm-hmm. from in that decade. Mm-hmm. But Billy Bishop, Wally Fowler, Roger Pate, thats a name. The yep. Pancake House car. Yeah. Kyle Davis, Mike Galt, Earl Davis, Jamie Madison, Freddie Crawford, and then you're there with 15 wins. Mm-hmm. That's yep. just, just all the names are just yep. unreal. That was some good, good See, racing.
1: I didn't run after '99. Yeah, and I came back. Um, when did I come back? No, I didn't run. I didn't race it uh, in the early '90s when I started the sportsman division. I didn't have the money to do both. Right, but you know you had ten. No, you only had seven other sportsman races, but you spent more
2: money in those seven races than you spent on a Thunder and Lightning car all year. Tim Goode, yep. Spider Man, Bill Morgan, P.D. Ivy, yep. Yeah, it's a O and O I mean, they're just it's Doug Osteen too. I mean, they were just unreal. Yeah, you were a part of history right there, running with all them guys for sure.
0: You kind of mentioned the sportsman division there. We ain't got to yeah, talk I wanna get about that. We ain't talked about that yet. So you had. So let's just read off names. Even the TNL guys went and run there. You did. Wally won a couple races out mm-hmm. there. Caldwell went out there and run some. But it's a story. It, yeah. Call. I'll get into it in a second. Caldwell told me a story one time. He said the brakes were so bad when you hit them, they just lock up. He'd leave a brake line loose so it just bled out and this go to the floor. It was actually safer. But uh, uh, talk about how did that come about with you getting the sportsman division? Because Humpy Wheeler had the idea to get a old. Grand National Winston Cup car, put on these kind of subpar parts, and go out, and for your weekly Saturday night, how did your experience come about, and how did you get into that ride? Well, I got
1: frustrated with the Thunder Lightning deal, but they were having at that time, and I, I don't, excuse me if I don't know all the facts, but Richard Petty, from the way I understood it, Barry Graham, Rodney Combs, And I think Barry Graham was the guy that owned the—
2: They started the Richard Petty Driving Experience. Exactly.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, I competed in that. I got a sponsor, and I competed in that. And uh, the deal was they had a set of cones in turns one and two and three and four open at Charlotte Motor Speedway. You got five laps of practice, and then you ran a 10-lap practice, and then you got one lap. And they scored you by filming that by your speed and your accuracy in the cones. I don't know exactly how it went. They had 484 contestants, not all in one day, but they had people from Europe. They had people from anybody could do it uh, except Cup or Bush drivers. And I call it Bush because that's what it was back mm-hmm. in the day. And uh, anybody could compete. they had 484 contestants. They were taking the top 25 to the Superdome in Australia. They paid all expenses. The drivers got to go over there and to compete, and you got one lap. Whoever was the fastest guy. We, this was a 12-day trip, but we were we were at the track for for a week. And I went down and did that. So You thing. made that top 25. I was okay. number 25. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we made the trip. It was it was a great great experience. Lots of fun. Um, but serious, I mean, really dead serious and, and, and everybody, uh, we we're riding around, they're throwing four or five race car drivers during the day in a right-hand drive vehicle, driving on the left-hand side of the road, going to roundabouts at the intersection. You had to go the opposite way. So it was, it was an experience, uh, that, uh, that I won't forget, but we, uh, I think I ended up fourth. I was 23 hundredths off of the uh, winning mark. Uh, A guy that drove open wheel modifiers from up north, Jeff Fuller,
0: Hmm.
1: uh, won it. And uh, he got to go back, uh, I think it was five times to Australia, race uh, with the Australians, all expenses paid, Uh, it it was a pretty cool deal. Um, And I was all serious as I could be uh, going to bed at nine o'clock at night on my game every day. Jeff was in the bar till it closed, <laughs> <laughs> and he kicked our time. But in as an end result, day in day out, he was the fastest guy there, and he deserved to win.
2: So, uh, so then I, you know what happened after that? I
1: came back, uh, found out about the sportsman division. There was a man in Charlotte uh, that who was looking for a driver, and I uh, went down and drove the car for the. the the three races, the way they would do that thing, we'd go down for 10 days and we would be a support event. We would race before the Bush race on Saturday morning and then we would race uh, Wednesday night of qualifying and then we would race again. No, nope, let me start over. We would race Sunday night of the Winston. Then we would race Wednesday night of qualifying and Saturday morning the Bush race. That's the way it went. So we ran three races in an in eight-day period. But... Uh, I, I got in that car. Never had driven any asphalt other than go karts, and I had a had three, a seventh, a sixth, and a
2: fifth in in those three runs. I yeah, the, I, was, I got the stat sheet to back it up. There, <laughs> we found that online. Can you? Yeah, leave that's online? I found
0: I found that on my work computer. I looked up Ronnie Soul Sportsman, and all, that's all your results. It has mm-hmm. one win. Your first one was a top ten finish. You got tenth, eighth, seventh, and fifth. First couple. It looks like you had about four seconds before you finally broke through. But it's even got your USAR Pro Cup down there at the bottom at USA International.
2: A big three thousand dollar payday there when you did win that one. Yeah, big. Yeah, that paid.
1: Uh, th- that that paid for a dinner. <laughs> <laughs> I had uh, I had some. Uh, everybody was volunteer help. Uh, one good story was, um, well, to go back when I got out of that car. I found a car. There were actually two cars uh, in Forest City. A guy, Carrie uh, Appling, both drove those two cars, and those were cars that Kurt Shelburne drove. So I purchased one of those cars, and uh, the car just wouldn't go. It wouldn't get up to speed. It, it would run. It did. I mean, it did good. But it was a rear steer car. I wrecked the car, and we put a front Bobby Wilton put a front clip on it, and it was on. And Robert G put the body on, and. Uh, yeah, we won the first race out that week. We ran third on Wednesday night,
2: and then I had a horrible crash uh, the next week, which made the front page of the stock car racing and the circle track magazine. Here, <laughs> you see that here in the if you're watching the GoPro show, but yeah, uh, so. So you're talking about Fatback McSwain, or Fatback McSwing was your crew chief, wasn't Sure was,
1: he? yeah. Fatback helped me around home on some car stuff and came to shop and helped us get the car ready for, for Charlotte. He traveled. He and my brother traveled back and forth with me for a month from Shelby to Charlotte to Robert G's shop every night. To work on that car, Robert worked his day job at Hendricks, and then we would work in his shop out behind his shop. And he put us a new body on there, and and uh, we won the first race out with it. Robert was was th- those were some times. He, that was that was uh, a lot of fun and a lot of exposure to, uh, to somebody who had seen the ropes. You know, was,
2: I bet it was cool to get to hang out with Robert G. He would. What was uh, some of his wit and wisdom?
1: Uh he loved to cook steaks, and he loved to soak them down with Worcestershire sauce, and he would cut one right straight off the grill, hot as it could be, and say, here, boy, and stick it, in, <laughs> stick it in your mouth. And but he, uh, we wanted him to, uh, we tried to coerce him into cheating the body up on the Monte Carlo. He told us he didn't need it. He said, this, this car, this body is one of the best bodies ever built for a race car. And... Uh, he proved it in, in uh, the, I mean, it was it was unbelievable. It was play. a
2: great-looking car. Yeah. It was yeah. a great-looking car. It was like an 87 Monte Carlo body, yes. right? But, yes. But my question on that is, is, the race that you won was in 1994. Why were they still building a car, an 87, not instead of like a Lumina or something that was more modern?
1: I'm not 100% on this, but my the indication that I got starting this division was to create a place for the Winston Cup and the Bush cars to go. You could run a 105- or 110-inch wheelbase car. Um, you, so, so that was creating uh, somewhere for them to go, you know, for us to buy those car. The problem was the 105-inch wheelbase car, the engine set back far enough that the cowl opening was giving them an advantage because they were getting, getting more air to the carburetor. Well, we started testing. In fatback. back, Michael McSwain, who was my crew chief at that time, um, I think was his first crew chief job, but he um, he started making these cow panels, and we were changing them to see where the air was changing and how it was helping. Well, there was nothing working for us. We could close the cow off; we weren't getting any air. And NASCAR saw what we was doing, and they came over because we had a, a a gauge. I think it was called a magna MagnaHelic that tested the airflow, and it didn't it, it, it didn't change. So. Uh, we couldn't run with 105-inch wheelbase cars. The car that you showed that I finished second to so many times was the same car, but a different owner. Finished to Robbie, Robbie Faggart, I finished second to him several times, and then Marty Ward. Uh, but that that was a brand new car. That was a that was, that that wasn't a, an old car that was built. Uh, so, um, but NASCAR saw what we were doing and saw that the air. Uh, was not working for us, and so uh, they came up and made everybody close their cow off, which made that playing field more even. In doing that, we came up with one of the greatest cheater parts that we had ever come across. Um, we cut a flap, had a flap cut in the firewall. It was as wide as the cow, but we used it to put the cowl opening pieces down, and we used that cowl piece to lock off that flap when NASCAR was inspecting. We had another cowl piece that didn't knock it off, block it off, so we could push that. I had a rod, and I could push that thing down, and I had a bill's blower that looked like it was blowing to my feet, but it was
2: blowing to the carburetor. So it was a good horsepower advantage. (laughs) You had to run the two barrel carburetors in that series. That was the rule. Yes. And anybody I've ever heard talk about it say you got to keep them wide open. You never crack the throttle. Yeah. Uh, The hard part
1: was there's a hump where they always cross the track at the back. And there was an indentation there in the, in the asphalt and, uh, it was really, really hard to learn to hold that thing wide open because you're running on the two hardest tires I assume that, that NASCAR's got. Uh, we're we're running on Talladega and Daytona tires. But the deal was they were two hundred bucks a set.
2: And, you know, not bad.
1: No, it wasn't bad at all. But uh It
2: was hard to keep the car under you sometimes. Yeah. Ronnie, we'll take just a quick break here on the Forward Bike Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Armstrong. Blake Harris, we'll be right back with more with Ronnie Sewell. Welcome back to the Forward Bike Podcast. We've got Ronnie Sewell here in studio. Been some great stories so far, but I don't even think we've really scratched the surface, have we? And Blake Harris over here asking some great questions and appreciate him being a part of this today. Ronnie, we were talking about the sportsman days there and your two-barrel carburetor and some uh, and some secrets that you're finally telling them for the first time ever.
1: Yeah, we worked uh, really, really hard under a tarp. My brother did for all day on a Saturday to get the the blower system put in, uh, so so that they couldn't uh, recognize it. But the, the tech officials were pretty. They were pretty cool. They were pretty. You know, they were lenient in some ways, but they had rules they they had to uphold. But they'd walk by and they would say, "Don't know what you're doing under there," but. We gonna catch you <laughs> my brother tony worked under all day under that hot tarp to get that uh to get all that installed it uh it, it was working
0: working pretty good
2: so you had wsrc 103.7 as your sponsor I, we were kind of talking about that a little bit before we got in here i thought it was a neat story to bring up on the show if you yeah if you want to tell how you put that together
1: uh actually my brother tony put that together he was uh he did rodeo he announced rodeos for 30 plus years and uh Spent a lot of time around the people in the radio business, and they were big into uh, that kind of stuff, the radio station was. And he met some people over there. There was a lady named Valerie Gladden who was in their promotions department. Great friend, still a great friend. Uh, She worked and helped us get the sponsorship put together and then worked on a sponsorship with Horseplay Western Wear. And uh, that actually got us to the racetrack for for, uh, several races. Uh, Gave us a lot
2: of exposure. Uh, Great people. Yeah, one thing, I can remember that car. I remember whenever I was uh, three or four years old, you had that car at uh, Gastonia at that Fish Camp yep. Jam selling yep. autographs that day, and we we went to that. And I remember seeing you there that day, and I just I just thought, well, that's Ronnie. You know, I, I felt like I knew you, but you were almost like a celebrity or something there <laughs> signing autographs. <laughs> uh, we, uh, you remember doing that?
1: Yeah, I remember there behind the bank building. Mm-hmm.
2: I remember exactly where it was. Sure I can was, remember going to that. Oh, that's
1: a big kid. day. A fish camp's a big deal in, in the Gaston County area. They, <laughs>
2: they don't do nothing like that anymore. They ought to bring that back.
1: We uh, we used to go to uh, um, Graham's on Saturday night. My father uh, drove a truck, and uh, there were six of us, and we'd go to Graham's and eat fish. That was our treat. Eleven bucks for the whole
2: family. Can't beat that. My dad worked at Twin Tops. You know that, right across yep. the street yep. there. Him and. Yep. Him and Joe Farr and a bunch of them—they all worked right there. At I worked at—I uh, worked at. Uh, What's the other one down there? Catfish Cove, mm-hmm. Raymond. I don't think if of it you again. if you grew up in Belmont or Cramerton, you didn't work in a fish camp. I don't know if you grew up there, <laughs> right, or you
1: didn't play on the river. Yeah, because the river ran right behind the the middle school, that's the last school I went to. We moved from from down there to Cranston Middle School. My parents actually moved to that area from the North Carolina and Georgia mountains uh, to work in the textile plants. I think your mother and my mother are from the same town.
2: Hiawassee, Georgia?
1: My mom was born and raised in Hiawassee, Georgia. I didn't know that.
2: That's news to me. Yeah.
1: There's uh, 11 children in my mom's family, and my dad was from Haysville, North Carolina, which was right around Right around the corner. And uh, there are 13 children in my dad's family.
2: Wow. So uh,
1: came from a big family.
0: I do want to ask you kind of, so you got out of the sportsman division. You said you come back to T.U.D. Mm-hmm. Of course, then... Before y'all running mostly Camaros and stuff, y'all mm-hmm. still had ten inch tire for you left. But then you come back, they kind of went to all sheet metal bodies in the Clip Car. Mm-hmm. Was that kind of how much of a change was that for you? saying, you're just away for a couple of years, but here's this TNL division that's almost not recognizable.
1: It was basically just the bodies. Uh, the suspension rule was pretty much the same. Uh, and the reason for the body rule was you couldn't find the stuff. You know, you know, we're running a that that was. You know i ran mopar stuff in the first three years and then we switched over to a camaro and uh couldn't believe see with the mopar stuff you, your enemy was the suspension A torsion bar suspension and it was so hard to find anything we had to go to buddy arrington's shop and get torsion bars that were big enough to to uh to, to work on the suspension and that's not like changing a coil spring mm-hmm. so uh but when i came back the bodies had changed and uh actually wally fowler built my car.
0: Really?
2: Sure did. He built me a new, brand new car. I'm looking through these pictures here. These are pretty cool that you brought three-wheeler. Yeah, that, that so, I mean, this is cool right here. We were talking about the sportsman days and there, there you are right here on the front page of the Racing News Magazine, right under Jeff Bodine, a picture, it says Scott Blumquist won 25,000 and then you're right there beside Jeff Gordon. And I think that was one of Jeff Gordon's first wins ever. Mm-hmm. So he turned out to be all right. There you are right there on the front <laughs> page with him at that yeah, time. I'm right on his heels. You. Yeah. <laughs> so that, um, yeah, the T&L days, that was, like i said, I think, I don't know if we've stressed it enough, but just the people that didn't, there's a whole generation now of people that never saw you race, never saw the T&L cars. And, and it's sort of sad, you know, Cherokee Speedway's, not been a half mile since 2006 was the last one. So it's been a long time since. When when did you kind of wrap up your racing career? Was it 2006? It was 2003 Six. that they
1: changed the track configuration.
2: Well, 2006 was, I'm pretty sure. That was the last blue-gray 100 on the big track.
0: Okay. I for sure remember. Yeah, because I'm going to make both of y'all feel old. I wasn't born until 2000. So I, I was part of that generation. Really didn't get C T and, and I remember I was probably in elementary school. I, 2006, I think. Yes, I know it's 2006 because I collect a lot of history stuff. Like Phil, you can ask my girlfriend. I have a clock from the last year. It's the 50th anniversary of Cherokee Speedway. 2006, last year, half mile still working, hanging up in my apartment right now.
1: I've got one of those with my, a picture of my car. They used to do the <laughs> oh yeah the, the wooden clocks with the car on it. Um, I guess I I quit in, uh, I think it was 2003. Um, I'd started my own business in uh, 1988. And uh, it was starting to grow uh, a lot and needed more of my attention. And my daughter was in her uh, second year of college. And uh, she called me and said, Dad, I want to work here. I said, well, you are working here. When you're home, you're, she did the custodial work. I I made her, you know, I I mean, that's what (laughs) I had her, I didn't have anything, but she, you know, she did a lot of stuff. She did beauty pageants. She did dance. She did so many things. So she didn't really have, nobody could create a schedule where she could have a job. So I told her mother, I said, let her do the custodial work and I'll pay her five bucks an hour and that's how it'll be. But when she went to college, she calls and says that, you know, I want to work there. And I said, well, you know, she said, no, I want to work there. And uh, best decision that she ever made for me in (laughs) in several ways because she now runs the business. But I decided at that time that I needed to put my efforts and my finances more toward the business to prep it for her. And uh, so I, I, I... Plus, I had been racing late models for two years. I couldn't find my way around the suspension, and my crew chief that I had was a young guy, and he was struggling with it too, and and a man told me, he, Ron Parker's dad told me, he said, it'll take you five years to learn how to adjust that car and learn what it's capable of, but I raced two years, and I ran limited late models and late models, and I won two races in two years, and I just was not happy. I was used to, you know, winning, uh, you know, a lot more often and uh, that along with the, the choice of my daughter to come to work there it wasn't a hard to see, I just, I wasn't in love with it anymore, you know uh, I lost my sense of smell in 2006 and that if, if you don't know how, I mean, a lot of, you, you don't understand what a impact that smelling racing fuel and smelling the heat from an engine and you know, you can smell if if a transmission is going bad. You get a hot fluid. You can smell rear end grease. You can smell a, you can smell an oil leak,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and fuel. Fuel fuels you if you're a race car driver. Smelling yeah, no. that fuel fuels you, and and it took a lot of the. You know, it might have been uh, the man upstairs way of telling me. I mean, giving me taking my passion away for the right reasons because when you're smelling, I had a guy show up with a drag car one day at my shop, and he cranked it up and to unload it. We were going to do some fab work on. Him. I said cut it off. This is before I lost my sense. He said, what? I said cut it off. I can't, I, I, I can't stand the, I still run it in my I run it in my side-by- side and stuff and everybody says, what do you got in that thing? because I, you know, I still can't smell it, but it helps the performance, you know so uh, a lot of decisions there uh, in, a, in a short period of time, but bringing my daughter into my business was by far the best business decision I
0: ever made. So you started, what's now sole contractor in pre. Uh, earlier, than I thought you did, 1988, and now your daughter, of course, she got educated and had that business sense. Did you always have that business sense and that financial kind of ability growing up, or is that something you kind of had? You was the person that liked to get their hands dirty and work hard, and then you had to learn that as you go on.
1: I'm your grunt laborer. If there's a job to be done and it's a shovel and a wheelbarrow versus a computer or or, or, or something else, I'm, 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 I'm the guy that feel, feel, I feel more comfortable doing the hard part. Um, but my parents uh, came from large families, and my father joined the Navy. Uh, my, my mom and dad got married. My dad was 20. My mom was 15. They had four kids by the time my mom was 22. Whew. And uh, so and, and they, uh, when dad got out of the Navy, there was no employment in that area. To support the family, so he came. That's how we ended up in Mm Cramerton because Burlington Textiles was there, and that's who they worked for. Dad said he worked every overtime hour he could get, and he made $106 a week. Wow! And
2: uh, my granddad from he came out here as a young teenager back in the 40s or 50s, and I guess it would have been 40s, and worked in Cramerton right there, right there at the Mayflower plant in Cramerton. And what was wild about that was all them years later. I worked at what was Essex Parts there, AP Racing. I worked there for eight years in the the exact same piece of property. Just never would have planned it that way, but that's the way that worked out. But anyway, just a neat little side story there. I
1: rode through there. Every chance I get, I'll ride
2: through there and stuff. And
1: there behind where the Mayflower Plant is, you know where the river backs up under the bridge, back toward the mountain? Mm -hmm. If you drive out through there a little bit, it's grown up, but you can still see it. There's an old walk. Uh, an old it's, it's made out of steel but it was sheeted in, in timbers there was a walkway across that canal back there and when I was six years old my dad took me squirrel hunting and we were had to walk across that thing and I could remember having on my mom's coat a big brown corduroy coat to stay warm and that coat would get hooked on the angle when I was going across that walkway and I kept thinking I was going to fall in that river but uh, I got a Ton, ton of memories. We used to sneak up to the old uh, mansion up there. Mm-hmm. We went snuck up there one time and it was empty. We went all through that thing. It was, it was pretty cool.
2: I think it's abandoned to this day. That Maymont mansion up there, what is it called? I thought they rest- I thought I they restored it. I saw pictures of it. It's, I don't know, but it's a heck of a mansion up there. We took a drone up in there and like went all, you know. Got pretty a buddy of mine I used to work with there. We took a drawing up there. Like, there we're was, getting off topic here, but <laughs> uh, I don't know. It was it was a neat it's I know exactly what you're talking
0: about there. Yeah, so you talked about how kind of your raised situation you was in. What made you want to start your own business to this big corporation it is today? I was uh starving
1: to death. <laughs> no, not really. I was uh I had uh, worked for a trucking company in my early twenties and uh, they sold out. I was in management and they sold out and uh, to another company and I didn't want to relocate. So uh, I opened up a detail shop and uh, ended up getting into car sales and did really good at the dealership. And then uh, I left the dealership and opened up my own dealership, uh, used car dealership. And I was starving to death. And a friend of mine that I played poker with and I've played poker most of my life. But he came by and asked me to help him on a job and went and helped him on a job for a few days. And I made more money in three days than I was making in a month. So we formed a partnership and stayed partners for uh, a period of time. And then we split up and uh, started my own business and got into the fabrication business through Doug cool. I was We were in the painting business. We were doing a lot of painting. And, and uh, a lady ran into a conveyor in a plant. And asked us to fix it, and I went and got Doug Man to fix it. I made fifty dollars on that job, and I thought there's something to this. I've made money, and I didn't have to touch it. And started buying a few pieces of small equipment, and then the fabrication business got bigger and bigger, and uh, it's done really, really, really well.
2: So explain to me exactly what Swell Contractors is, because I don't really think I have a full understanding of what you guys actually do. I know you've got traveling welders, and you know yeah. all kind of stuff yeah. like that.
1: We do. Uh, we do site work for a for, uh, different industry around town. Our biggest customer uh, on site work and fabrication work uh, on that end is uh, Duke Energy. We've been doing maintenance and repair work for several Duke Energy facilities for almost 20 years. But uh, our biggest shop uh, customer is uh, in the mining industry. We build mining equipment. These. Uh, these shows where you see the shakers on the, where they put the aggregate inside in the shaker. We build components, complete units, whatever they whatever they decide they want. We build uh, build that stuff for a company. And we you know we've got Walmart distribution center, uh, numerous other. Uh, we started out at the fiberglass plant at PPG. They're doing a lot of work, uh,
2: but it's 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 been good. That Walmart's coming right there, or the big distribution center's right there next to you. And yes, it is. You're fixing to have the bypass coming through there. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? <laughs> That's way off topic. but I, I, I just, Yeah,
1: I'd, I don't have it. I'd like to see them get the bypass done and yeah. save me a little time here and there. But no it's, it's not affecting me. Uh, uh, it's not affecting my business either way. I'm out there in the country setting. I was telling you earlier, I'm three minutes from my home and five minutes from downtown, and uh, everything's convenient. It's not as rushed and crowded as it is in this area over here where I was riding around in earlier.
2: <laughs> Let's talk about your uh, poker career. That's what you're passionate about now. You uh, go all over the country playing mm-hmm. professional poker, and uh, from what we understand, you're pretty doggone good at it.
1: Well, it's it's been a little rough uh, in the last few months, but uh, last night was great. I just finished up at uh, Cherokee. They have a uh, World Series of Poker uh, circuit event, which lasts 10 days. Uh, just finished up up there uh, two weeks ago. Uh, preparing to go to uh going to jacksonville florida to play uh, this weekend um it kind of um took a uh i've always enjoyed poker but uh i got another nasty story to tell <laughs> <laughs> but um i've always had a um a short fuse per se maybe a a, a, te- a, a quick temper but uh I had a situation that uh, uh, with an ex-wife and a local um, person who worked at the hospital, and uh, uh, I guess they got a little too friendly for my uh, liking. And I visited him at the hospital, and there was a few things happened, and we ended up in court. And uh, they sentenced me to six months of anger management, <laughs> which was probably the best thing that ever happened. Because, you know, when your hands are tied like that, you kind of look at things a little bit different. And I started traveling more doing the poker. And in poker, you can't have a conflict. You can't have any physical conflict with anybody over anything. When the WSOP sanctioning body, you're barred for life. So uh, I've been, uh, been. It, it was a good thing. It was a good thing for me. But poker, I, I enjoy the poker. It's taught me a lot of patience. Uh, I've met some great people, uh, got some local guys I play with, uh, every Tuesday. And, uh, my brother was a great, that passed away in, in uh, September was a great poker player. He had, uh, he had two, uh, circuit event ranks and, uh, he was actually the Cherokee casino champion, uh, a few years
0: back.
2: Man. Yeah. That, that, that's a big title. Yeah. No doubt. That's yeah. a big place. Yeah.
0: So Ron, so Ronnie Sewell gets into all this money winning in poker just because of altercation where he may or may not try to bite another guy's ear off. <laughs> no. I love that story. That was so awesome. Hey, that was totally
2: self defense. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I want to. Yeah, I want to ask you about another one. In the June 1998 National Geographic magazine,
0: you're,
2: <laughs> you're mentioned in there. You're they, mentioned. They were
1: asking about Red Dirt.
2: Yeah, they were asking you about red the play yeah and and there's a little there's a couple sentences in there about how you uh what was it got cut was that what it was mm-hmm. and yeah. they almost cut a, cut along or
1: uh, what was it it was it would if it was a half inch would have got my juggler mm. um I won't use any names but uh, there was a, I just had a brand new car uh, another car put me in it was they just put those concrete barriers up which I never liked. But uh, he put me up on one of those barriers this certain car did and the car owner absolutely hated me and uh, had no reason to and uh, I didn't like him, but he he, he just hated me and I, but anyway, my car's torn up and I, I'm walking down Pitt Road and he's snickering about it and I said, you know I said, get ready for next week you know And uh, he comes running down off a rollback and he hits me well, I defended myself, and he fell down, and he got up, and he fell down again, and he got up, and he fell down again, and then somebody grabs me, and they cut me uh, all the way around through here. But it was kind of superficial. It didn't, didn't damage anything. Uh, they did put me in uh, ICU for a night to watch me. But uh, uh, another one of those deals, I'm walking down Pitt Road, not bothering anybody, <laughs> and somebody decides to knock me down.
2: Yeah, that made the National Geographic magazine. Mm. <laughs> Man, that's uh that's crazy. Well, Ronnie, I uh, I don't know if I've got anything else I really want to add. I just I just really appreciate you coming down here tonight, and hopefully we hopefully we got to tell the tell the good stories, and hopefully everybody will enjoy hearing this.
1: Well, I, I hope I didn't I offend anybody, and I I hope they don't think bad of me because uh, <laughs> uh, most of those. Situation or defensive situation. I went to race. I went yeah. to win. I wanted to have fun. I wanted to keep a nice, clean car for the sponsors and and represent them well. And and uh, didn't always end up that way. But I'd love to go back and do it again. Um, that was one thing I was going to ask you. Oh, I'd I'd love to go back. And do- I, oh, we didn't have finances. We'd go to the junkyard. I mean, you try finance to Mopar suspension parts for for a Challenger. The people were restoring those cars, and we're tearing them up on the on the racetrack but uh trying to we'd go in junkyards get eat up with mosquitoes and uh, you didn't have to carry the parts out you just let the mosquitoes carry them to the car for you <laughs> <laughs> that's how big they were but uh we uh i, I wouldn't take anything for you know uh, y- y- we didn't have a parts washer we washed our washed our parts in a in a five gallon bucket with uh with gasoline and uh, uh you get a cut on your hand, you'd. Uh, Put some paint thinner on it, you know mm-hmm. things you just just aren't supposed Lackers to thinner. do, but uh, that's just what we did, and and uh, I, I I had a lot of fun doing it, and, and a lot of little tons of great memories, and and lots of friends.
2: Right, and and yeah, I, I appreciate your friendship over the years, Ronnie, and and I did want to mention you you just touched on it there. You always had some good looking cars, and that one of those late models you had there, right there, whenever you were in, doing that had the chrome roof and all that on it mm. and the red and the number 20 that was a sharp lake model mm-hmm.
1: we actually had a chrome complete chrome car one time
2: right well yeah really? I remember that yeah Some, that was a good looking car I remember that man I hope uh hope everybody gets something out of hearing this and we'll, uh, we'll maybe do it again sometime for sure but yeah we'll uh, probably go ahead and wrap this thing up for tonight and Ronnie I appreciate you being on here tonight I appreciate Blake coming in here and adding to it that was a lot of fun This has been another episode of the Forward Bike Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Armstrong. For Ronnie Sewell and Blake Harris, we'll see you next week.